Welcome to She Been Ready, the podcast. She Been Ready is a conversation, a declaration, and a clarification that Black women have always led. On this podcast, I, Dr. Wendy Williams, educator, psychologist, leader, and auntie, will be joined by Black women who lead and those who have been led well by them. So, you don't have to get ready when you stay ready. And you can trust in the leadership of a black woman because she's been ready. Hello and welcome to She Been Ready, the podcast. I am your host, Dr. Wendy Williams, here with you for episode seven we're talking about our elders and our ancestors, y'all. We're talking about those who have come before us, who've laid a path ahead of us, who sort of cleared the land so that as we pop onto the earth, pop into our spaces and think about how to articulate a movement and a moment for ourselves, that we can take advantage of the legacy that was laid bare in front of us. One of the things that I've been doing a lot of work on of late and a lot of writing and talking about of late is on Black women's liberatory leadership praxis. It's framed in some ways in the, you know, the description of our of this podcast. It is a way that I've been thinking about the leadership legacy of Black women, popular, well-known, and, you know, in the public eye, and those who we know personally because they have led our households, our communities, our churches, our grocery stores, our post office, there's so many black women doing things in a myriad of ways, even though our society would not credit them with having a skill set, a know-how, a, a reason to be leading. And so elders and ancestors leaning on their wisdom, leaning into the ways in which they craft a pathway for us, have crafted a pathway for us. And what we do with that feels really important. I'm so excited to have invited my sister friend, uh, Laree Daniel Favors, to speak with me about this. I want to share with you a little bit about who she is. You get a sense of it in, in our talking. I, I'm a pretty, my mother says that I, I wear my guts on the outside. I just share how I feel. My heart beats and tells the truth pretty expressly and without a lot of, <laughs> without a lot of filter. And so people know when I love them and you will know that I love Lurie when you hear us together. I, I just do. So she is currently the executive director at the Center for Law and Social Justice at Medgar Evers College. Medgar Evers is, and we talk about this in the interview, is one of the City University of New York campuses. It's located in the heart of Brooklyn. It's, you know, right in the heart of Brooklyn, Bed-Stuy, Crown Heights, Flatbush. It's, it's right there and is really responsible for educating a lot of Black Brooklyn. Lurie talks a bit about her journey to that space and how leadership legacy, ancestral and elder leadership legacy actually crafted a space for her there. So I'm looking forward to you having an opportunity to hear about that from her. She is super smart. I mean, one of the things that I find so funny in our speaking with one another is how fast she speaks. So there are times, and I'm just going to apologize in advance, where our Zoom connection, I don't think I don't think it was able to keep up with the speed of her thoughts and that she can actually get them out of her mouth. I think really fast too, but somehow the words just sort of collapse on one another. Lurie has a silver tongue. She can get the words out and really you can follow her. It's melodic. She trained as uh, to become an attorney at NYU School of Law. She was the Root Tilden Kern Public Interest scholar. And she also co-founded Sankofa Community Empowerment. That's actually how I met her. She and her husband, Partner for Life, and well, as well with others, created this community-based uh, not-for-profit organization that was designed to empower racially disenfranchised communities that was majoritively black communities, but it also extended to black and brown communities and really thinking about the ways that race is, you know, instructive for creating an equity. And so they didn't allow any of their work to to be limited. Um, they wanted they're they're looking for liberation and freedom for us all. And, and so it's really I, I love their work in that way. She also co-founded Breaking the Cycle Consultation Services, which is an LLC. It specializes in creating comprehensive professional development for educators, youth education programs and family workshops. And it's also designed to address crisis in urban education through the use of culturally responsive teaching. Now, most recently, she has this new project that she's doing, and 
I'm super proud of her, but also super excited that her voice has been amplified so widely. She now hosts the Larie Daniel Favor Show. It's on the Sirius XM Urban View uh, station, and she also co-hosts a show called Sunday Civics. Larie is phenomenal. One of the things that you're going to grasp and connect when you hear from her is how she's able to take very complex and um, and intricate ideas, nuanced ideas that shape and affect the lives of people, of black people in particular, in ways that are digestible and accessible. And that's so incredibly important. She is a phenomenal educator. I know that she may see herself in that way, but probably primarily a journalist and an attorney. But she is a phenomenal educator. She really does have a way with getting an idea through the nugget hole of our brain so that we can understand what she's thinking too. And that's so powerful. One of the things to look out for in this conversation, alongside the power of and the reasons for being tethered to the the wisdom and the brilliance and the efforts of our ancestors that we talk about, is also a conversation about entrepreneurship. This was a surprise. I wasn't expecting this with her. But Larie uh, is an entrepreneur. And she and her partners in consultation and in in their community-based not-for-profit organization have really thought about how to have autonomy over their work and spaciousness around what they want to do toward the liberation of folks of color and black folks in particular, and to not be discouraged or controlled, you know, encapsulated in a smaller version of what they have dreamed for our futures, rather than, you know, taking jobs that support and and work toward that larger mission, and also letting things go that look like they might interfere with that or disrupt that. I think that's a very powerful thing for us to, to sit with and think about as we are thinking about leadership. She talks about it from the context of starting her own law practice and how it really forced her to see herself and see entrepreneurship as a leadership practice. I think that's something that we want to also process as well. I want to encourage our listeners to cultivate those independent ideas and their own, you know, work toward their own ideas and, and or collaborate and partner with others who share in that vision with you, but to be an owner, not a consumer. And so I'm really excited about the way that Larie um, was able to sort of talk that through and the surprise of that in this conversation as well. So I hope you enjoy that too. So with no further ado, let's tune into my conversation with Larie Daniel Favors at She Been Ready, the podcast. Larie, thank you. I'm so glad to see you. You look amazing. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> I'm so you good to see amazing. you. <laughs> like, I feel so giddy. And you know, you know, I've been laughing and giggling all this time. And so I won't pretend like I just am seeing. I'm just overjoyed to be with you right now. You even got headphones and everything. So I want to just like share a little bit about who you are to me, to the folks who will be listening and excited about that. You are a sister friend. You know, you are one of those, like, they don't make them like, they don't make them. Are you going to do that Wendy thing where you embarrass me and then expect me to just grin and bear it? Because no, no, no. I'm just going to be honest. I'm going to be honest and I'm going to shower you with love because that's a form. That's my form of leadership. But truly, no, truly, truly, truly. I mean, super excited about like all the things that you are doing. We, you know, have chatted about some of them already. The Larie Daniel Favor Show on Sirius XM. Like my God, and the following of your show. So you had me on that one time, and then I started following and like watching the ways that people get lit up by you and the Mm. conversations and how you hold a space of community there. And that's a big piece of, I was really sharing with you why I really wanted to talk with you that you're recently appointed executive director at the center for law and social justice at the Medgar Evers college. Yes, ma'am. In Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn. Yes. (laughs) One of the city university uh, in New York, uh, one of the schools in that, in that system, which is huge and big, big. You're a daughter, a wife, a mother, a sister friend to many more people. I know I just get to be like a sliver of one of those people, but just so, so, uh, grateful to you and for you. And, you know, when I thought about having you come and speak uh, on this podcast, she been ready, which is about black women in our leadership practice and, the ways in which we practice leadership. It's its a beautiful thing to watch and witness. And one of the reasons why I wanted to do this type of work is because I'm tired of people calling us hashtag black girl magic and things like that. Cause it's actually, there's, there's philosophy there. There's 
love there. There's soul there. There's spirit yeah. there. And I want to unpack it. It all is not the same. So you can't just say black girl magic are, we're actually magical in different ways, in mm. nuanced ways and, and diverse and in, in, in a range of ways. And so I want us to unpack that. And I know some very magical women. So yeah, yeah I do. Mm. And so that's really where we enter this. You know, I know you from some of the really deep and profound community work that you have done in New York, in Brooklyn, where I met you. I knew your husband from college. And then when I yep. met you, I was like, oh, hi, Brian. Hi, Marie. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to scoot you to the side. Um, if she could come friend. over, that would be really, really great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 not you. Just yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> right. That's right. Like, you're good and all. You chose well. Thank you. Um, <laughs> But just always having such a solid commitment to amplifying mm. the needs of our community, of the Black community, for our children, for our families, for our elders, and everyone in between. And mm. it's such a profound space from which to think about leadership, I think, because I think that it's something that's uh, uniquely not only happening within the Black community, but something especially important to women who are leading within the context of our community. And so, you know, this is the topic and whatever else you want to talk about, as I've told you, I trust your leadership and I will follow you. But ultimately, and where we start with each person who I've interviewed and have had uh, with us is to ask them how they know that they've been ready. How did you know that you were ready? You know, when was it time for you to, to not, to take up the helm, whatever that means? How old were you? Was it in work? Was it in career? A lot of your work has been in community work too. Have you always been like this? I know your mother. And so I think I know the answer to that question. <laughs> you know, she has told me stories about you as she's done my hair. But all to say, you know, when did you realize that, you know, I could do that, that I should be doing that, that I know what needs to happen in this situation? Who were you? Mm. What were you? What were you doing? Yeah. Oh, girl. I love you. I just want to say first, I. Thank you for all of the gracious, beautiful, and amazingly kind things that you just said. And I'm going to resist the urge to push back on them and just receive them because I know that um, you and your Dr. Wendy space would be like, oh, what you're not going to do is discount your blessings. So I thank you and I reciprocate all of the love that you have expressed for you. And I think this is absolutely fantastic. I am so honored to be a part of this project and you are covering such important issues and topics. So I just want to first start by saying thank you for allowing me to be a part of your space and co-create this baby with you. As far as when, have I always been like this? Yes. <laughs> I think that is just, that is just the truth. I've always sort of been and I think this was because of a training that and intentionality in terms of parenting and family guidance. But I've always sort of been raised with an understanding that I have a responsibility to a few things. Number one, my community. And when I came to understand what it meant to have ancestors, number two, my ancestors, um, not necessarily in this order. And then number three, people who were coming after me. So it's sort of like that whole cycle. And that was because, you know, my parents are military, so we did not spend a lot of time growing up in one space. And my, I had a lot of uncles and aunts who were like, so y'all living in Europe a whole lot. You're going from, you know, German base to German base. There is not a bastion of blackness there. And they just happen to be a very pro-black family. Like my mom's side of the family is just extraordinarily in touch with who they are as black people. And so we got the, you know, the Africa Bombada, you know, tapes, because this was before CDs. We got, you know, when I was little, you know, I'm Gen X. We got like Public Enemy. They would send books, you know, just uh, really we were intentionally showered with information that was designed to show us that we were connected to the community that we come from. And when I was little, I, I thought I was actually going to be a doctor. I actually had a plan from like the time I was seven, eight years old. I wanted to deliver babies. I didn't know what that was called, but I just know I wanted to deliver babies and I was going to have a clinic, Wendy. And I mean, Dr. Wendy, excuse me, I'm going to give you your honorific girl. Uh, I knew I was going to have a medical clinic that would deliver babies in the hood and the people whose babies I delivered would then work in my clinic because I wouldn't charge them. They would, you know, get medical care in exchange for volunteering. And at the clinic, we would have classes and the kids would be able to go to school because I was homeschooled part time. You know, so I, mean, I had this vision. And then I ran into math and science and I did not have a good experience with math and science. I did not have Doc McStuffins. I did not know about the hidden figures. The figures were all hidden from me. So I am just now through my children having to learn math, becoming, coming to appreciate that I could have done this, but I, I did not end up being able to go down a medical path because I did not have the basic fundamentals in those disciplines, which is necessary. You need to know science to be a good doctor. And when I was 17 years old, we came to New York City again to visit my family because that's where they were here. My mother's family immigrated from Jamaica and they landed in 
primarily in New York. My daddy was from New York as well. And one of my uncles took us to go see some black lawyers. And it was, you know, a traditional thing. Like every summer we would come and visit. We knew we was going to go see some black something. And they would took us to, I think it was the slave theater. And I heard all of these lawyers and activists, and this was right around the time where, you know, um, uh, oh gosh, uh, not Charles Barrett, um, Al, uh, Al Sharpton was, was really, you know, sort of in front of center in terms of publicity for a number of the cases he was working on and, and a lot of his advocacy. And I remember being in this theater and hearing this attorney take to the stage. His name is Alton Maddox. I'll never forget it. And he's a very controversial attorney. Yeah, very controversial attorney. And he spoke in such a way that I was like, what? We could say that? We could, I want to do that. This whole doctor thing may not work out, but that, that I can do. I have words. I can use my words. And ever since then, I was like, okay, I'm going to law school. I'm going to be an attorney. I already knew I was going to go study black studies when I, whatever school I got to, I wasn't sure how that was going to happen, but I knew I needed to do that. But I've always sort of been, I guess, primed for positioning myself in this space, which is one of the reasons why it's a lot of work, but it doesn't feel like work because it's what I absolutely love to do. But in terms of how, when I've known I was ready, I don't know that I felt unready. I think I've just tried to use every opportunity I found myself in to do the damn thing. If that's, does that make sense? Like, it wasn't about like there was this thing I was trying to get or a position I was trying to be in. It just felt like whatever position I was in, I needed to be able to speak as unabashedly and unashamedly in defense of my community as I possibly could. And that opened up doors that allowed me to get access to position. But for it, it wasn't necessarily a seeking of a particular position so mm -hmm. much as it was playing a role, which is to be the voice that was going to advocate and agitate on behalf of my community. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I answered your question. You did. That's really interesting because, you know, sometimes we tether and this leadership thing to a job. And I hear you, it's not about a job, you know? No. One of the hopes that I have for these types of conversations is that for young women, that they can see a variety of versions and paths <laughs> for them to, you know, just make their way to wherever it is that they see themselves being and going. And sometimes when we take the opportunity to lead or, you know, when we place a community need inside of an institutional organization, it becomes a job, which is by necessity. And then we think about like, how do we pay for this role and give, you know, so that it's not all volunteer or, you know, the service work without remuneration, but there are consequences to situating particularly the needs of community within, within those spaces because of the types of politics that come up around jobs and so, and, and positionality. And so what I hear you saying is that it was really where and how to use my voice of the moment because leadership, not from a career or job perspective, though you obviously need to feed yourself and your family and things like that. But you were sort of looking for those moments and times where you could be like automatics and like use your voice in a way in public to articulate some of the needs of the community to get those needs met, which is what you're doing right now. Isn't that like powerful to like, I'm sure when you see how you manifest that in your life, were you going to say something else? Yeah, I just, you know, I, I love that you identified what I probably could have said in far fewer words. Um, <laughs> which is but yeah, but it, it's never, so I never knew that you could get paid working for black people. I just knew that, you know, I just knew that I had to work for black people. So even when I was a corporate lawyer, right. you know, I knew I wasn't going to be a partner because I didn't want to be their partners because they wasn't partnering on nothing that I thought was going to be relevant for us. I was there because I wanted to fund my nonprofit. So, <laughs> you know, so I was, I was always very intentional mm -hmm. about wherever I was at using that, seeing what, you know, what resources can I siphon and sort of divert to the needs of whatever it is that we had going on. Mm -hmm. So it, it definitely wasn't tied to a job because it's only now that, you know, and, and actually let me back up. I've also always been willing to be an entrepreneur. So yes. I have had positions where I have had to walk away and set up my own company and try to be profitable in my own space because I was not able to be as openly mm -hmm. myself as I was in some places. So I think that if you are truly sort of going to be kind of how I be, 
then there also has to be a recognition that you may not be able to rely on other people wanting you on their payroll. Right. And right, so if you're right. if you're not comfortable with that, then that might cause you to make different different decisions and different choices. Mm-hmm. And there's no shade to that at all. We all have to deal with what it is we have to deal with. Mm-hmm. I just knew that I, you know, I come from people who have had to be entrepreneurs. So mm-hmm. I I've always sort of been comfortable with the idea that I may actually have to show up differently mm-hmm. and in my own space. And I happen to have a spouse who is the same way. So mm-hmm. we, there's a lot of internal support for needing to walk away from positions that would not allow me to show up in the way that I need mm-hmm. to. And not everybody has that. That's a real point of privilege. So I think that mm-hmm. it would be, it would not be serving the audience well to not also confess that that is a part of how I've structured my life. Because mm-hmm. we have a logo and our motto, I should say, in the Favors household, which is like, listen, mm-hmm. we gotta, if I can't be as black as I need to be, I cannot be here. And mm. if that is with a job, with a position, with a with organization, with whatever it is. If, if I feel as though my integrity is called into question and I'm being asked to silence my voice, this is no longer the place for me. That's right. That allows for a lot of freedom. It also allows for a lot of stress. <laughs> but it allows for a lot yeah. of freedom that I think I should just acknowledge so that people are clear as to why I can roll that way. For me, entrepreneurship takes risk and, you know, courage. It feels like a form of leadership. I wonder what you think about that. Is it to you or like, am I just making something up? (laughs) No, I can definitely see that because at, you know, I I feel like the difference between the Lurie that is in entrepreneur mode versus the Lurie that's in work for someone else mode. And again, no shade on either because I've I've done both and, and I know that we are all, you know, sort of works in progress, pun intended, unintentionally. But (laughs) I, I feel like as an entrepreneur, you are definitely in a leadership mode because Mm-hmm. You the buck doesn't just stop with you. It starts, continues, and ends with you. So mm. um, one of the things I realized when I opened up my own practice was I was a very good lawyer, but mm-hmm. I was a terrible law firm business manager. And mm-hmm. you know, a law firm, a lawyer who was in private practice. This is after I left the firm. Mm-hmm. You you're not just being the attorney. You're being the biller. You're being the yeah. person who markets and advertises. You have to cover payroll. You have to engage in collections. You have mm-hmm. to you know secure all of the infrastructure for your enterprise. So after law school, I found myself going to this mini 16 week, mini MBA intensive program because I was going to go out of business if I did not learn the business of running my business, which is very different than the business of being a good lawyer. Fire leadership. It it requires a different set of leadership because there's no preset model for you to follow. There's no... When you go to work for someone, there are a list of instructions that you receive. There are expectations that are set out for you. Someone else has already created the infrastructure and the ecosystem through which your work takes place. And as an entrepreneur, you have to set that up. Yeah. And so it really does require you to tap into some leadership capacity and spaces that perhaps you may not necessarily be asked to tap into quite as much if you're working for someone else. So one of the things that you know, I have witnessed the ways that you have tethered the work that you do in the world with the legacy of our ancestors. And you kind of already did that in talking about all Maddox and, you know, just sort of being in that space and also your rearing and the family values that really inform your walk on the earth. I wonder if you could, if we could slow it down or like, you know, sort of, I'm thinking of the matrix where you just kind of pause and do the, you know, like, let's be inside of that space a little bit and like really unpack it a little bit to share a bit about why you link the walk of our ancestors and our elders to your work. Like, why? What makes that necessary, useful, important to do? I think the why is because I have come to learn that there are far too many issues, far too many challenges, far too many hurdles for us to overcome if we are only reliant on the wisdom that we possess. And if we rely on the wisdom that is present with us in the earth right now, and there is so much wisdom and, and so much knowledge and uh, guidance that is available when we are connected with our ancestors, when we're connected with our history. And I have just come to employ what I call the, well, I don't call it this, the people who created it call it this, the Sankofa principle, uh, which is this idea that you have to look back to your past in order to understand where you are today. And certainly if you hope to build for your future and the, the image of the Sankofa bird from which the principle is drawn is a bird that's 
uh, walking in one direction, but its head is turned back in the direction from which it came and it's got its, this egg in its mouth. And that egg represents the bird's origins, its history. And it's, it's sort of like, you know, the American version of this would be, you know, those who don't learn their history are destined to repeat it. But Sankofa is saying something different. It's saying that you must go back. It's not just about learning your history to avoid repeating it. It's about learning your history so that you can use it as a tool to understand your present and then more effectively build for the future. So the, the way I have come to understand and what we as a community need, and then because I'm a racial justice attorney, that's the work that I care most about, is that we can't get what we need if we are reliant solely on what is here. There has to be, because we are dealing with, some would call them ideologies, I call it a demonic spirit of white supremacy, because that is sort of like what we're battling when we're talking about trying to create a more equitable space for black people, which is the work that I do, then it really does require us to recognize that, you know, as, as one religious tradition would say, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities, with, with things that are beyond the physical. And that requires an intergenerational, inter, inter dimensional, I guess, if you're talking about ancestors to here, um, but it requires us to think more circularly about what it is that we're facing. And by circular, I mean, thinking about not just how these issues impacted our ancestors and elders, how they're impacting us, but how are they going to impact generations from now? I had a chance to interview uh, a sister uh, not too long ago, Angela Matthews, who does amazing investment work and, and education work for young investors in, or beginning investors. And one of the things that we were talking about is that there are communities that plan not for today, not for their kids, but seven generations in the future. And healthy communities, indigenous communities, non-Western communities tend to think in terms of generations, not in terms of now. But when you're steeped in sort of a rugged individualist culture like we are in the West, as opposed to a communal culture, then it's easy to to think only in terms of my lifetime. When you are a part of a communal culture, the idea is that the needs of the community are sacrosanct and, and the needs of the individual come secondary. And the community itself recognizes that it is also a part of a cycle of life, death, and birth. And that for me, that philosophy sort of informs how I do my work. And so doing my work without the benefit of the ancestors would be a most terrifying thing. And you know, I, and I, I talk to my ancestors and I, I want my children to have a relationship with them I, because it matters. And there is wisdom and things that they have access to in terms of knowledge that can be shared with all of us. You know, one of the things that I, you know, as I listen to you, is appreciating how that two things. One is dealing in, in life and community in the world with people who don't have as much depth or appreciation of the spiritual realm mm. and how it lives inside of our work, inside of our lived experience, just yeah. not just, just our life and what it must be like for you to hold space, knowing that you need, it would not yeah. make sense, especially as you said, grappling with things as large as white supremacy, patriarchy, sex, you know, all of it. Yeah. Right. And you just going to come with your book. No? With your law degree. With your law you degree. Go, you go Good luck with that. Demons. Good luck with that, you know. <laughs> yes. And so there's that piece in terms of making, being in that space when other people are not there with you and trying to translate. Mm. If you can. Sometimes I imagine you can't. Wondering what you think about that. The other thing that I think about is how to tether, how to reconcile legacy with current day. Mm. And maybe this is the same question that I'm asking, right? You know, because legacy is deep. And, you know, I've been really enjoying just finishing up the 1619 project. So really enjoying oh, like legacy yeah. deep. Yeah. I mean, it really is sort of a call to our ancestors and our elders and all the sacrifice and all the joy mm. that they brought for us and taking myself slowly through that book. I've, I've been slow with it because I wanted to, you know, really let it settle. And the, the real denial and efforts to try to step away from truth and reality, mm. just like what actually happened. Our ancestors are the actuality that happened. Right. Like. To erase them, to say we can't talk about truth or history, is to actually disappear them. Mm. So, yeah. So I, I think about those, that context in which we're living now. It's the context in which you're working. Now you're at Medgar Evers, which is, you know, I call it the HBCU of New York. Uh, yes. Because it is. You yes. Know? <laughs> I was just trying to describe me to someone like, whereas I was like, it's right in the middle of Brooklyn. Best the blackest Crown Heights, place. Flatbush, it's the blackest place in the Northeast. And so there's cons there's consistency and in, in, in contiguity there, right? But you're yeah. also within the City University of New York. Yes. And that is yes. not the blackest place. 
that is, you know, that is very governmental and bureaucratic. So I've said a lot of things, but what I'm really wondering is about the management and of those tensions of being Mm. in this space, grappling with holding consistent with maintaining that connection and also Mm -hmm. with people who are really disconnected. I mean, I lived in New York for nearly 15 years and not everybody is tethered to their soul or to, you know, to a spiritual space. And just wondering about like, how do you reconcile that? How do you engage this work um, in that space? So here's where being a student of history is really helpful for me, because when we understand how the current version of the religion that most people of African descent in this country practice, Mm -hmm. we recognize that there was a lot of intentionality behind that, or or we recognize it when we learn that. And if you don't learn that, then it's hard to sort of make sense of those things. I was raised in a black church and I also spent enough time in white denominations because again, we were military brats um, to see that there is a difference in the type of Christianity that we practice. There is a difference in the type of uh, spiritual relationships that we cultivate within black and white religious spaces. I mean, I'm going to answer your question as I kind of go around my back to scratch my elbow on this one. But there is a, what I used to remember asking my parents and thinking, like, even when I was in college, why is it that Black people only do, like, we ask God for money miracles? Like, I don't understand. Like, sister so-and-so, we testifying that, you know, she got a job or that they got a house or that their car was repaired. Like, those were the testimonies in Black churches. In white spaces, if they had testimony service, because they do things very differently. White churches... Their testimonies were, you could be an atheist and get a house. You get be an atheist, you had to have no relationship with God to get a job. Like, it didn't make sense to me that in Black religious spaces, for us to have such clearly powerful spiritual connections. I mean, you go into a, a Black church and you see some getting cast out, some laying on a hands, you will see some miraculous things happen. And yet it seemed as though our, our intense fervor and emotional spiritual outlays in the, in the black churches, you know, the, the praise and worship, the, the, the music and the use of music as a tool to open up the emotional spiritual gates within the hearts of the people who were there. It seemed as though we were able to use our power effectively in those spaces, but we were no threat to white supremacy. And we were no threat to, you know, the poverty outside the door. We were no threat. And I didn't see a real practical implication of our spiritual practices the way that I was taught to expect to see them when you study the story of Jesus. And so the more I began studying the story of Jesus from a non-religious aspect, but from a historical perspective, to the extent one can do that, and began looking at, you know, some of the consistencies or, or the similarities between the story of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, and Osar, Aset, and Heru, right? Or as they're known in the Grecian language, Osiris, Isis, and um, Horus. Um, when I began to study books like Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization by Anthony Browder, where he talks about the fact that um, the story, he, he, there's a chart in the very beginning of the book where he compares the story of Jesus to the story of Heru. Uh, And he talks about the fact that the story of of these African people were written in pyramids thousands of years before the story of Jesus. And it made me think, well, now, wait a minute. Now, I didn't know that. They didn't teach me that in Sunday school. There has to be something else here. And so that, for some people, would be a little frightening, right? Because the one thing about Christianity is is if you're wrong, boy, is there a price to pay? It ain't like other religions where if you're wrong, you got another chance you can come back around and live again. You know, you're wrong in Christianity. You know, it's going to be hot for a very long time. But I wasn't afraid of that process, the process of questioning. And because I was open to that process and still felt very confident in my spiritual relationship with the Lord, Son, Jesus, that, you know, I was okay with exploring these questions. And the more I explored, the more I realized that there is a depth of spiritual knowledge that we could be tapping into, that we were intentionally taught practices that would force us away from that, right? So, and I get that, but that is a whole, you know, Africana studies class. You got to understand, you know, the fact that black people in this country, uh, once we were enslaved, we were taught out of a Bible that was not the same as the Bible that the white people was using. There was a slave Bible that only had the slave stories in it. And we were taught to relate to God in a way that said, you know, well, trouble ain't gonna last always. We'll be washed whiter than snow in the hereafter. And that's when we'll all be free. So, When that is sort of the roots in which our current spiritual practices and understanding of religion are based, it makes sense that people are very fearful in many ways of sort of thinking about ancestors and thinking about 
thinking about tapping into what everything that we were talking about that I tap into and still maintain their they name in the Lamb's Book of Life. So getting to your actual question, <laughs> sorry, getting to your actual question, it is easy for me to hold space within those tensions because I don't blame our community for not having access to the information mm -hmm. that was intentionally withheld from them. Mm -hmm. It is my job to translate those stories and to translate that information into a way that they can receive it. We don't blame somebody without a leg for, for needing the support. We provide the support and ensure that they have what they need to, to carry on. So I don't blame our community for not having this information. And when I'm engaged in those spaces where that tension is there, there's a reason why I will very firmly and, and will forever be fluent in black church. Because you got to be able to speak the language of the people in order to be able to, to, to do this work. And I cannot come into a space acting as though I got it all figured out or, right. or be condescending or, you know, and, and so, so there's that. that. It doesn't become an issue for me because I'm not trying to convert anybody. I'm not trying mm -hmm. to convince anybody. I'm trying to walk in integrity and do my thing. And that alone seems to be enough to allow people to get over the fact that they suspect I might have some Buddhist tendencies. <laughs> She <laughs> believes in astrology, but she said, yeah. <laughs> you know, your so comedic sad. timing is like, it tickles me so much. Right now. <laughs> you have done like so many things with language, with the gospel, like you're very like, my gosh, <laughs> I don't think I've asked this specifically and directly to you. And I think that I should. It may be that you feel like you've answered this question, but also I know that you just love words and you just may just say things <laughs> and approximate toward it. But how have your commitments to uplifting the wisdom and lessons of our ancestors and of our elders, uh, of, their, of their trials and their triumphs, how has that shaped your leadership? How has it shaped the way that you run things? You're a big mm. boss over there. How does it shape the way, <laughs> way you, how you engage your assistant and how you work with the staff and how you articulate a vision to a community. How has it, mm. what does that look like? So I'm really fortunate because as you know, already noted, I work in a very black institution, all black, we are predominantly black. I work at an institution that I, I did not know it existed at the time, but when I mentioned that, that ex experience I had where I was listening to Altomatics when I was in my late teens, what I did not know was that a few years earlier, he and a number of the activists and attorneys and the first sort of round of Black elected officials had been working together to create the Center for Law and Social Justice, where I now work. Right. So that, that was a loop I did not, a circle I did not close. So I am where I am at by intention and design, not my intention and design, but by intention and design. And because I happen to be working at the Center for Law and Social Justice, which is the only racial justice law center in the state of New York that is charged with advocating on behalf of black New Yorkers, the expectation is that, I don't wanna cuss on your show, that we are black AF, okay? And so I think that you can cuss. Because okay, so, I'm in charge of everything here. Well, there we go. It, it, it pays to be the boss. So the expectation is that we are we show up as blackly as possible. And I cannot do that publicly if we're not doing that internally. Right now, I'll give you an example. We're in a real period of rebuilding. Because, you know, we, as I just mentioned, our founder, she, she founded us 36 years ago and she just retired not too long ago. And so we are in a real period of restructuring and rebuilding. And it's important that we rebuild and we restructure in a way that centers the needs of our community. So we have uh, a, a particular position at the college that requires you, it's one of the lowest paid positions at the college. You know, there are tiers of, of and, and there's a hierarchy, uh, but there are tiers of payment that if you don't have a certain set of credentials, you're kind of locked out of some of the upper tiers and you can only sort of apply for positions in these lower tiers. Well, the least empowered tier that one can be employed for is a position that also requires you to get a criminal background check. Now, I don't care what your criminal background is. I, I have been arrested. I have, you know, but there, but for the grace of God. Like, you know what I mean? I don't care. Like, I was a wayward teenager at one point. So all of you parents are wayward teenagers. Don't worry. It can get better. Like, sometimes a child just needs a little time to get their stuff together. We, you know, it's a position that, quite frankly, is, is most appropriate credentials-wise for people who are representative of our community. But it is also the least paid, and it requires you to get the background check, which costs 
costs almost $100. And so if you're getting at the lower end of the pay scale, $15 an hour, which I know people call it a livable wage, but are we serious? Like, seriously? Come on, y'all. We, can, we need to label things better. You would have to work many, many hours before you could reach the $100 you need in order to pay for this criminal background check. Now, we don't care about the criminal background check at our center. Um, we have incubated centers and institutions that are designed to help people have greater access to reentry. So we, you know, this is not something that we care about. But you can't get the job if you do not apply and pass a criminal background check. So we have sort of structured ourselves for candidates that we think should be brought on. We cover that cost and we eat that cost because we think it's important for them to know that we are not going to allow this to be a barrier to entry. We're not going to allow your criminal background to be a barrier to entry because we understand where our people are coming from. We understand what it means to be over police, under resourced and forced into a position where, you know, one of the things that we have to remind ourselves, the safest communities in the world don't have a lot of police. They got people with all their needs met. And so if your needs are not met and that has tripped you up in the, in the past, how black could we be <laughs> like, if we were holding that against you or if we were not doing what we could to subvert a system that may not have intentionally been designed to exclude the vast majority of black people, but it results in intentionally excluding, it results in excluding, I'll take intentional out, uh, but it results in excluding people. And so we have had to fashion our policies, our hiring policies that say, if we want the best of the best, and sometimes the best of the best have a criminal background, we are going to have to make sure that we are structuring our hiring practices so that we do not allow that to be a barrier. When it comes to engaging in an advocacy or education campaign. We recently finished our, our census campaign before the redistricting cycle happened. And I can't walk into a room full of black people talking about, did you fill out your census? It's your civic duty and it's very important for you to do so. First of all, they're gonna be like, you the feds. And what are you here for? <laughs> Why are you trying to get me to this information? We had to make it a racial justice issue. So we had to start talking about the three-fifths clause and the fact that they was only counting black people as three-fifths, not because they didn't think we was human. We was human enough to have children with the increase the slave population. We was human enough to breastfeed their children. But we had the three-fifths clause because the census was being racially manipulated so that white people would be able to secure all the resources and political power for their communities without giving any to us. And they wanted to make sure that they did that because they based their, their leading of this country on population. So we had to start with the racist part of it. And then we had to be able to Explain now, listen, folks, we understand that as black people, we don't want to fill out the census. We don't want to give no money to the government because the government is the feds. We know what that means. 400, 500 years ago, somebody strange come knocking at your door asking for census type information. You was going to end up in the bottom of a slave ship that night. 300, 200 years ago, somebody come knocking at your door asking for information. Half your family might be sold to a plantation down the river the next day. A hundred years ago, someone comes knocking at your door looking for information. It might be ACS or child welfare services coming to take your children because of the crime of poverty. You don't have enough to eat. Oh, you don't deserve to keep your kids. And today, a stranger comes knocking at your door. You might end up like Breonna Taylor. Right. So we understand what it is to have justifiable fear of government and of giving over information. However, then once I got once I can say that and once I can blackify the story, then I can say, but now here's the problem, y'all. The census is actually what is responsible for putting resources in the community. So if you live in a community where only 40 percent of your community is going to get 40 percent of the money that you are entitled to. But you got to educate 100 percent of the kids. I had to talk about who they are and center who we are first. Then I can get you to go vote. Then I can get you to go out. Well, I got so excited. I'm I know you did. You know, that education piece has been such a big part. That's how I came into knowing you and being in the mm. community work that you were doing some like very grassroots work at the time, just yeah. in the Bed-Stuy community at Food for Thought, which is such a beautiful <laughs> name for a restaurant and cafe. <laughs> but it is about helping to bridge that gap. And so you started it. So the through line, one of the reasons why I've been so excited about these conversations is that I get to talk with people I know, but I also get to see the through line with them through their lives. Mm. So maybe you all know this through line, but sometimes there's like an awakening or an awareness that happens in front of me. And so as a psychologist, I get such a kick out of that. And that through line is right there, right? You saw Alton Maddox, the, the theater, the slave theater. I don't think it's there anymore, right? I remember when I was yeah, no. off of Alton, right? And, <laughs> and, and you were in that space watching him decrease the distance between the community understanding the conditions mm. and legal and political conditions in which they were and, yeah. and him using his words and his, his presence and his demeanor and the trust that people had in him to yeah. express that and articulate that. And that seems to be what you have done mm. with your life. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. that. It's right there. Like, there like it it's is. right there. Um, you good? I know, but you better. <laughs> but you better. No, you're so good. Um, so it's almost time for, and, and I know you're on the East Coast, but a little bit later, you probably have kiddos ready to eat. But they're big enough now; they can get their own thing. Oh no, they, yeah, they, they, <laughs> I'm like, they can reach the cabinets. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and the loving spouse has already handled their meal, so oh, thank God for that. Good, good, good. <laughs> so one of two two final questions, and the both I think really important. One is, you know, thinking about you, thinking about your journey, thinking about those women, young women, black women, who I know are ambitious and excited. We don't think mm. they can do everything. And mm-hmm. the world is showing its full on ass to them. Yes. Um, yes. And, you know, I have four nieces mm-hmm. and they're powerful. And I, I keep bet. thinking about, because, mm-hmm, you know, <laughs> and I just keep thinking about young women, though, in their 20s and their 30s, and they're coming up against some of this stuff that we know is there. What words of advice, of wisdom, maybe it's things that you say to your mentees or folks mm. that you advise and who listen to you and come to you for guidance. What wisdom or advice would you impart to them on their journeys? So I am going to sound a bit like a broken record, but this is another place where having a connection with the past is really important, right? It's a lot easier for me to think about how I'm going to move forward when I think about and actually, let me give a cautionary note here, because sometimes we do this thing where we're like, well, our ancestors could be cutting all day from sun up to sundown. Lord knows I can work hard today. And, and I get where that comes from, but we should stop doing that. <laughs> we should not do that. Now, having said that, I'm going to do it. Um, so, so, so it's easier for me to think about navigating issues and navigating challenges when I consider, okay. If I were, if this were 300 years from now, and not that I'm picking cotton all day, but I'm running from something, I'm running away, I'm, I'm running towards freedom. Think about all the things I would have had to be able to, to pull together. Think about Harriet Tubman or a queen nanny of the Maroons, right? Being able to not just have a desire to manifest something, in this case, freedom, and not having access to the things that they needed, didn't have maps, didn't have necessarily even in literacy capacity for literacy in this country. Um, didn't, you know, if, you, if you're on a plantation that's 400 miles wide, you could be walking for 500 miles and only be 100 miles outside of where you were. And just thinking about that and the ingenuity. And the creativity. And, and yes, there's a, we are strong, but not so much the strength. We are freaking brilliant at figuring stuff out and figuring out how to make a way out of no way. And I think that for people who are in that age group where they're sort of coming up against some of those, those hurdles that some of us have, have had to also navigate, I think reminding ourselves that, oh, honey, this ain't. We done did worse. We done had to go through worse. And so, so sort of being grounded and recognizing, taking a big picture view that th- we, this is within the realm of, of doable, right? If, if we can do, <laughs> we can do all the, we can build, you know, not just run from slavery, if we can literally create math and science, if we can literally be the first person, I was uh, telling some friends of mine about the, um, the Shombo bone, I think I'm saying it wrong, uh, but it's the oldest mathematical tool that's ever been found. It's like 45,000 years old. It might even be older than that. Anyway, it's the oldest mathematical tool ever used. And they describe the notches on the bone and how you can tell it was used. Uh, and it's from a, a part of Africa, I believe, at Zaire, the Congo. Uh, and so, one, Black people did create math, just that's an aside. But at the end of the description that I was reading, it talks about the fact that there was now an understanding that the bone was carved into 28-day increments. It was a lunar cycle tool. And who is counting lunar cycles but women because of our physical cycle. And so the mm-hmm. idea that the first mathematicians were likely black women, stuff like that, that lets me know, mm, oh, I got this. Yeah. <laughs> Are you seriously trying to force me to squeeze my brilliance into your mm-hmm. teeny tiny little boxes because you cannot conceptualize how magnificent I am as a black person? That is a shame for you, but I'm bigger than these boxes mm-hmm. and we have a history to draw from. And the more we know that, not just the, that we struggle through the swamps, but the, no, like we literally created math and science so had i known that when i was trying to go to medical yeah. school medical school you would right so yeah. yeah yeah so not just tapping into the wisdom but when we say ancestors a lot of times we talk about the enslaved but we got like 190 some odd thousand years before that That's of right. african brilliance and when you know that these little boys trying to keep you down in a corporate boardroom really mm. really no 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 Mm. Okay. So the last question is, and I have the door. Oh, what, 
are you doing? What are you, what are you looking forward to do? Are there new things coming down the pike that you want to mm. let people know about that might be interesting or engaging? Yes. So uh, I have the show is on Sirius XM's Urban View. Uh, the Black Talk channel airs live Monday through Friday, East, um, I'm sorry, 10 a.m. Eastern. Um, and it is a racial justice show. So we deal with the mess of the intersection. So issues of race, gender, culture, identity, politics, the law, all of them collide in this great big intersection. And we sit in that space. So um, we're Black AF in that show as well. But yeah, at, you know, at, at the Center for Law and Social Justice, we are launching um, something I've been really excited about for a very long time, and that is our Advocacy Academy. Uh, we recognize that, you know, our, our amazing colleagues at institutions like the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, they are in the courts battling and defending civil rights wins that they won in the 1960s and 70s. And they're still in the courts battling it out because um, legal battles are lengthy and they can go for decades. And forcing people through the courts to do what is right is one tactic, and that's a tactic that we have certainly been a part of, but we have been expanding our understanding of what it means to empower the people. And so we are launching our Advocacy Academy. I'm so excited about this because I really believe that if we invest in not the, the paid organizers and, and, and activists. Those folks are, are experts at what they do and they are they should be rightfully paid and, and I hope that everyone who has one on their payroll is doing them well. But we wanna invest in the people who are the everyday black person who may not have gone to school for organizing, may not have been a part of you know legacy civil rights groups, but they are passionate about something in their community. They have a solution that they want to birth. They just don't know how. And so we have like a, a it's a test to 15 week course. Um, the last round that we ran was 11 weeks, but we were expanding it um, to really teach everyday people how to take the basic tools of organizing and take the passion that they have and turn it into a community solution. I am so excited about this because I really believe that on the one hand, yes, a lawyer can come in and wave the flag of victory, but it's going to be the people who are going to mm -hmm. have to be empowered to do this mm -hmm. work. So uh, that is our latest and greatest uh, project that we are kicking off there. And I have a book coming out soon. Oh. Uh, it is nowhere near done uh, but it's basically going to be explaining how um how they did it and they are the folks who created white supremacy and create and enshrined it into our legal system but it is mm. not a book for the first book that i had written afro state of mind memories of a nappy-headed black girl sort of took my experience going natural to explain american history mm. um, and the history of what happened to black people this book is taking stories and vignettes from the law from the perspective of black people throughout the various stages within our history in this country and explaining how white supremacy was able to determine the outcomes for their lives so that we stop letting mm -hmm. that happen so more to come when that's done oh my god i'm so excited about this book i hope that you will come back <laughs> and talk with us about it oh, i would um, love to yes. oh my gosh thank you so, but so that's only if you promise to come on my show oh i'll come yours. whenever you want me to yes i love talking with you the only <laughs> challenge is getting up because <laughs> but i will do it for you um <laughs> this was so my gosh you're such an amazing orator. Oh, thank you. know you. that, right? Thank you. Yeah, thank you, you know it? You know it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, I <laughs> could listen to you all day, and I realize you're like, I'm talking too much. I'm like, is she? I don't know. I don't, yes, I think yes, she is. Good. I think we're good. Go ahead. Do it, do it. Thank you. Please. It's my pleasure. Thank you.